Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries, brought to you this month by WOW, the wholesale outlet warehouse in Akron. You're listening to a clip of My Best Dress by Clark County's Shelly Tackett. Shelly is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about her and let you hear the rest of that song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. And man, Steve, I got to tell you, there are a lot of horrible ways to die, but I got to say, an axe to the head has to be one of the worst. Tonight's story is a 1988 mystery out of Bellevue a rural community of about 8,000 people that straddles the Sandusky, Erie, and Huron County lines. That's about a half hour's drive southeast of Toledo. Our victim is Isabel Cordell, a 49-year-old mother who loved kids so much she had six of her own. She served as president of the York School PTO, was den mother to Cub Scout Pack 406, frequently babysit for her grandkids, and was active at the Bellevue Assembly of God Church. Now, the night of Saturday, January 23, 1988, Isabel went out to play some bingo while her husband Richard stayed at their Main Street home with their three children, ages 9, 12, and 14. Richard was her second husband. They'd been married about 16 years. She also had three adult children with her first husband. They had made her a grandmother 11 times over. After bingo ended, Isabel returned home around 11 p.m. to a sleeping house. Richard Cordell was stretched out in their first floor bedroom. The two younger kids were asleep upstairs, and her 14-year-old son, Richard Jr., was dozing on the couch in the living room. Isabel nudged him awake, sent him to his room, then took his place in front of the TV. She nodded off, curled up on the couch, dressed in her nightgown. Shortly after 6 a.m., Richard Sr. woke and left the bedroom. Isabel was on the couch, the television still flickering. And he noticed Isabel was covered in something red. At first he thought she had spilled something, but then he came to realize the red was her blood. He saw large gashes in the back of Isabel's head and thought she had been shot. The children upstairs heard their father's cries and began to stir, but Richard shouted at them to stay upstairs. Then he called police. There's a big hole in my wife's head and there's blood all over the place, he told the dispatcher. 
Investigators arrived, and it didn't take long to find the murder weapon. A brand new but bloody hatchet was leaning against a tree in the Cordell's yard. The coroner would rule Isabel had been struck four times in the head with the object, sometime between the hours of 1 and 2 a.m. Police talked to the four surviving occupants of the house and learned nobody had heard anything stirring in the night, not even barking from the dog in the backyard. And there was no sign of forced entry. Could Isabel's life have been ended by someone inside? Someone she loved? Investigators found what appeared to be a spot of blood in the bathroom sink. Surely in a house with four other people, a stranger wouldn't have taken the time to linger, even wash his hands in the bathroom after committing such a horrible act. Obviously, Richard Cordell had a lot of attention cast his way. It didn't help that he and his wife had not been getting along for some time. He was a heavy drinker, told police he had downed 12 beers that night, and admitted to numerous affairs. But Sandusky Sheriff detectives were also very interested in a former neighbor. A year earlier, Mark Carter had been accused of raping Richard Cordell Jr. There was a challenge tying Carter to Isabel's murder, however. That's because Carter was in prison. In the case against Richie Jr., Carter had accepted a plea agreement and was convicted of the lesser charge of corruption of a minor. For that, he was serving his time behind bars at the same moment someone had entered the Cordell house with a hatchet. That didn't stop some family members from thinking he might have had a partner. Carter had a good motive, they said. Even though he took the plea deal, Carter insisted he had never sexually assaulted the Cordell boy. And he may have wanted revenge on the one person who most forcefully pursued his prosecution, Isabel. Before the year was out, the Sandusky County prosecutor took evidence to a grand jury seeking charges for an unnamed suspect. The grand jury sent him away without an indictment. After that, the case grew cold. In 1997, Sandusky Sheriff Detective Hollis McBroom said upon his retirement that the Cordell case was the one that haunted him the most. It was such a brutal murder, McBroom said. That was one I really wanted to close. In 2013, there was a new sheriff in town, and the Cordell murder was high on his bucket list. Sheriff Kyle Overmeyer was the son of Paul Overmeyer, a captain who had helped with the initial investigation 25 years earlier. Sheriff Overmeyer reopened the case and turned to a rather interesting source for help. There was a new true crime drama on TNT called Cold Justice. In that show, a former Texas prosecutor named Kelly Sigler and a crime scene investigator named Yolanda McClary team up with detectives and forensic psychologists to try and solve a cold case each week. The show accepted the challenge of Isabel Cordell's unsolved murder. For two weeks that summer, they brought their production crews to Sandusky County to film as the show stars conducted fresh interviews and reviewed old evidence. In that episode, which they simply called Hatchet, Cold Justice considered three theories. (laughs) 
One involved that man who had assaulted Isabel's son. Mark Carter may have been in prison at the time of Isabel's death, but his ex-wife, Tammy Maines, told investigators that the morning Isabel was killed, Carter had called her and cryptically asked if there were any cops over at the Cordell home. Yeah, how did you know, she asked him. I got my ways, Carter told his ex. She got what she deserved. Maines told investigators that her ex-husband had a friend who would have done anything for him, a 16-year-old boy named Greg Weller, who happened to be the son of a sheriff's deputy. Weller, she said, was terminally ill with cancer at the time and may have thought he had little to lose. When Carter got out of prison, he stopped in to visit his ex-wife. She said she asked him flat out if Weller had killed Isabel on Carter's orders. I ain't saying anything, Carter told her. The Cole Justice team got Mark Carter to sit down with them. And during that interview, Carter volunteered the name of Greg Weller as the person who was the most angry at Isabel Cordell for succeeding in putting Carter in prison. Carter said Weller had told him he would make sure something happened to that family. But Carter said he didn't believe for a minute that Greg Weller was the hatchet man, in part because while in prison, Greg had written him a letter that said, what do you think about your neighbor getting killed? Someone got to her before I did. I think the husband did it. So, of course, Richard Sr., he was another person of interest that the show spent time with. Richard Cordell was 13 years younger than his wife, and as I said, had a reputation for drinking and philandering. Investigators thought he had a pretty good motive. A divorce with three kids in need of child support, that would have been very expensive. Cordell remarried eight months after Isabel's death and moved to Indiana. Isabel's adult daughter, Sherry, took in the three younger children and finished raising them. Cordell Sr. always denied having anything to do with his wife's death, and there was no physical evidence to suggest he did. The bloody axe and the spot assumed to be blood in the bathroom sink were both sent to the crime lab when the case was reopened in 2013, but Isabel's was the only DNA found on that hatchet. And that spot of blood from the bathroom sink, it wasn't blood. It was likely nail polish. And so now no one could argue that the killer had used the bathroom to wash his hands. And that meant the killer didn't necessarily have to be someone comfortable enough to linger in the house after the crime. A third person examined by cold justice was Isabel's son, Richie Jr., who had been the victim of the neighbor's assault and was 14 when his mother died. Investigators considered the idea that the boy might have been angry at his mother for pursuing the rape case against Carter because it made the assault public and humiliated him. The bloody axe that was left outside leaning up against the tree, that hardly seemed the act of an adult with a plan. It seemed more like something a child would do. And whoever struck Isabel with a hatchet used short, shallow blows, 
not the long swing that an adult might use in heaving such a weapon. But in the end, cold justice concluded the most likely suspect was Isabel's husband. And one of Isabel's daughters from her first marriage, Sherry Henry, told cold justice she agreed. Sandusky County authorities, however, came to feel differently. The show inspired a lot of new leads, and four months after it aired, the Sandusky County Sheriff announced they were confident neither Richard Cordell or Richie Jr. had anything to do with Isabel's death. Instead, the new information strengthened the case against an old suspect. They again turned to the idea that Mark Carter might have conspired with his young protege, Greg Weller. But authorities couldn't ask Weller about any of this. He was already dead, having lost his fight with terminal cancer three years after Isabel's murder. In March of 2014, the Sandusky County prosecutor took this idea to a grand jury again. Now, grand jury procedures are done in secret, so we only know a little of what happened by way of an interview that Richie Jr. did with the media. He told a reporter that he testified and told jurors that the suspect once yelled at his mother in public, it's not over until you're dead. But alas, for the second time, the grand jury decided there was not enough evidence and declined to hand down an indictment. And it turns out, putting the case on the TV show, that may have been what backfired. When Sandusky County Sheriff Deputy Sean O'Connell notified the Cordell family of the grand jury's decision, he told them the fact that cold justice and local investigators disagreed on who the killer was had the effect of confusing the jurors. And O'Connell told a reporter for the Sandusky Register Can I comfortably say Greg Weller is the one responsible for the murder? No. Do I have reason to believe that this person, meaning the suspect secretly put to the grand jury, was behind the murder of Isabel Cordell? Yes, I do. One could argue this case ultimately claimed a second victim. Another of Isabel's sons, Edward, was 12 when she was murdered. He was profoundly affected dropped out of school, and had several scrapes with the law. And in March of 2000, at the age of 24, while in the Seneca County Jail for a probation violation, he committed suicide. Another sibling, Dawn, told a reporter with the Fremont News Messenger that her brother had spiraled down after losing his mom. She said, quote, he was angry because no one was ever punished in his mother's murder. Well, every Sunday, we like to invite an Ohio Mysteries listener on board as our armchair detective. But first, let me tell you about tonight's sponsor. For the month of May, Ohio Mysteries is being sponsored by WOW. That's the Wholesale Outlet Warehouse at 144 North Canton Road in Akron. Selling name brand clothes, toys, furnitures, and more, usually at least 50% off. And I'm telling you, at least 50% off. Some of their stuff is 70-80% off. It's fantastic. Now, WOW is doing something pretty creative for the folks who do not want to leave their home. Every Thursday at 6 p.m., owner Brian is doing an interactive live streaming sales event, sort of like those 
cable shopping network programs. And right now they are also focusing on women's health and beauty. Think hair care, appliances, razors, bath salts, cosmetics, ladies apparel. So here's what you do. Thursday at 6 p.m., grab whatever device connects you to the internet. Go to jatango.com. That's J-A-T-A-N-G-O.com. Click on the wow window and start shopping. And right now during this pandemic, some businesses have to think outside of the box, and that's exactly what Brian is doing. You do not have to be local to get in on these deals. You can be anywhere in the United States. Log in, get some fantastic deals. Let Brian know that Ohio Mystery sent you. Have fun shopping. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Hello. We have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Well, joining us tonight is Linda Adams. Linda is from Ohio, but she's currently living in northern Colorado. Hi, Linda. How's it going out there? Hi. I'm doing great. Wonderful. (laughs) Yes. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, Well, my maiden name is Linda Schellingberg, and I grew up in Barberton, graduated from Barberton High School, Uh, lived in Texas most of my adult life, but I moved to northern Colorado two years ago. And I love it here. Well, listen, Linda, I got to tell our listeners, you did some of the research on this case. You, We challenged our listeners to find us some cases in counties that we hadn't covered yet. And you did an amazing job putting this together and, and sending me the newspaper clippings and videos and all kinds of stuff. So thank you for making my job a lot easier. <laughs> well, when I saw your request, I... My first thought was challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. And I'm an amateur genealogist, so I subscribe to newspapers.com. And boy, it's so easy to do research with that tool. I love that site. What, oh. what was it about this case that really interested you? Uh, actually, there were several things. Um, the victim seemed like such a nice lady. She loved kids. She was active in the community. Um, the fact that the murder weapon was just left under a tree in the front yard, that was so odd. How the murderer did it without anyone else in the house hearing. 
was interesting to me. And then the fact that there were two generation two generations of sheriffs who worked on the case. Because one of the first detectives on the scene uh, had a 14-year-old son who later became sheriff and reopened the case. So I thought that was pretty cool. There are a lot of interesting angles to this story. Let me- and then there's the way that the uh, TV show kind of messed up the ability to uh, get an indictment. That was crazy. So it made it sound, the comment that the sheriff's deputy told the family about the jury was really confused because cold justice and local authorities had different suspects. I guess I was kind of surprised that cold justice came up before the grand jury. Like, you know, I, I know that you they're very liberal on what they can give a grand jury in deciding whether to have the indictment. But clearly, there must have been a conversation to this grand jury, like, you know, there was this TV show, and they came up with this theory, but we think it's this over here. I thought that was kind of interesting, because I don't think that would come up at all in a regular trial. Yeah, that seems so odd to me. Well, let's pick apart some of these little things. According to the Cold Justice show, there was a dog in the backyard, and I would think a stranger coming into the backyard and entering the house the way he did... Why, but why would not anybody have heard that dog barking? See, I think the neighbor who was in prison got somebody to do this for him. And this guy had lived right next door. And so that dog might have been familiar. So you're thinking Greg Weller, who would have been the one to actually carry out the killing might have been over there enough that the dog recognized him. Yeah, maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but that's the only thing I could come up with. And actually, it was the documentary. It was a cold case episode that convinced me that Mark Walker was responsible because that phone call he made the morning after to his wife, who lived next door to Isabel, was so incriminating. Oh, yeah. She seemed really convinced that it was her ex-husband and this Greg Weller. So it sounds to me like you're 100% behind the Mark Carter Greg Weller um, theory and not the Richard Cordell Sr. theory. Yeah, he had threatened Isabel before the murder. Uh, He made threatening comments to the boy who had been assaulted. Yes, Richie told the grand jury that. And I'm sure he was very angry about serving time in prison. What I don't understand is why everybody, you know, when everybody saw the red spot in the sink, they all assumed it was blood. And the whole theory was, well, it must have been somebody who lived in the house because an intruder wouldn't feel comfortable staying long enough to go into the bathroom and stuff. But it was a long time afterwards that they figured out it wasn't blood. I don't understand this at all. That theory. I don't understand this at all because in 1988, surely they could have tested to see if that speck was blood. That speck was about the diameter of a pencil eraser. It was that small. How could they not have tested that in 1988 to determine whether it was blood at all? That's something that puzzles me, too. 
And then 25 years later, oh, it wasn't blood. All this time we're thinking this is a sign that the person lived in the house, but it's really nail polish. And I'm like, so you went for 25 years thinking it was somebody in the house because you didn't test it to see if it was blood. I didn't. I don't understand that at all. And then even after they found out it wasn't blood, they kind of still stuck to the theory that it had to be somebody in the house. Yeah, Cold Justice ended up, uh, well, they ended up ruling out Richie Jr., and they said they were convinced that he loved his mother, and losing her was not good for him. One of the things that drew me to the case was the fact that it's never, it's been shelved as a cold case, but it's never been really forgotten, and every so often people revive it. I think... That's in part because, you know, first of all, it's extremely gruesome. I mean, the idea of, you know, a hatchet murder in your neighborhood. But also, I think they have two really good suspects. I think there are people that probably fall on both sides. And so nobody's ever going to feel completely satisfied that even though the killer got away with it, they know who did it. I don't know that they can say that. Yeah. You know, the cold justice interviewed Richie and they asked him, they said, do you think your father could have done this? And he said, I can't say that he couldn't have done it. And so I was like, okay, so you can't throw that theory out. But, you know, he also said they interviewed me for 12 hours and used about two minutes. (laughs) It's a shame because it was just so ironic that when they aired the show, they got all this new information, which enabled them to conclude who they thought did it. But then because of the show, they couldn't get an indictment. Right. How frustrating that must have been. We don't know what new information that they got after that show aired. We, you, if you watch the show, you can see the information they're gathering in the interviews that they're conducting. But they said after the show aired, they mm-hmm. got some leads that allowed them to rule out Richie Cordell Sr. and Jr. and focus on the idea of Carter and Weller. But we don't know they, they what those were leads convinced. were. Yeah. And I, I wish I knew what those new leads were. Because if it's new, that yeah. means it's not talking to the ex-wife again or, you know, the things that we saw in the show. They said Mm -hmm. it was new information. I guess we just don't know what that is, but clearly it was strong enough that they thought they could go to the grand jury again. Yeah. Wow. And boy, some of those detectives, you know, over time as they retired, said, boy, I wish we'd close this case. That's the one that really bothers me. I absolutely believe that. I, if I were a detective and there were cases that I couldn't solve, I could imagine them haunting me all the way into my retirement. I absolutely believe that. If your listeners are interested, I found a Facebook page entitled Justice for Isabel Cordell. And I believe it's maintained by one of her daughters. Oh, that's great. You know what? I did not, I didn't know that. I'm going to have to check that out myself. It's like I said, this case just hasn't been forgotten. You know, one of Isabel's daughters, um, Sherry, thought that her husband did it. I I don't think Richie Cordell Sr. was her father. She had a different father. But she told Cole Justice she thought that Richard Cordell Sr. did it. Boy, that's got to tear a family apart when you have a murder and 
half the family thinks one person did it, other people think it's another. Right. I can't imagine being in that situation. No, I'm sure there's got to be some strange relationships there. Well, Linda, thank you so much for joining us from all the way out in beautiful Colorado. Colorado's so beautiful. I've got uh, relatives out there and have been out there many times. So from well, you your... having me. Do you, do you have like a view of mountains and stuff from your house? Oh, yeah. I'm right at the foothills of the Rockies. Oh, so beautiful. if you have to be in quarantine, at least you have that beautiful view. Good yes. for you. <laughs> I've never lived anywhere so pretty. Uh, the downtown, uh, the little town I lived in, uh, Disney actually modeled the main street on Disneyland on downtown Fort Collins. Really? That's how pretty this place is. Wow. How about that? Well, listen, you stay safe and stay home and we'll get through this. <laughs> well, again, thank you for having me. I had a blast. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. So Shelly Tackett is a country singer-songwriter who grew up in Clark County, Ohio, just outside of Springfield. She's a graduate of Kent State University and currently pursuing her career in Nashville, Tennessee. With the pandemic going on right now, hard to say when life will come back to normal, but... If we're anywhere back to normal, Shelley has plans to tour Europe, as well as opening up some U.S. dates with Grammy-nominated Brandy Clark. Shelley described the song tonight as good old-fashioned country killing, called My Best Dress. The song is on her latest album, Buckeye. It was co-written with Ashley McBride and Randall Clay. Anyway, keep track of Shelley on her website, ShellyTackett.com. Shelley has a unique spelling, so go to our episode notes, or our website, and we'll have the direct link if you have any trouble finding her. At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of Shelly Tackett's song, My Best Dress. Here's the rest of that song. Enjoy, and we'll see you here back next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.